Welcome everybody to New Polities Podcast, and particularly the series Political Saints. I am very honored to be joined today by Father Daniel Utrecht of the Toronto Oratory. He wrote this extraordinary book uh, called The Lion of Munster, and it is the Lion of Munster who will be our subject today, uh, Blessed Clemens August von Gallen. Um, Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. You know, so before we get into the Blessed Bishop, or later Cardinal, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, I was born in Cincinnati, grew up in a Catholic household in Troy, Ohio. Uh, went to the University of Dallas, sort of for all the wrong reasons, because <laughs> of uh, adolescent vanity, because they offered me a scholarship and phoned me up and said, we want you, son. So I, <laughs> I went there, and it ended up being the perfect place to go, and that's... Mm. There that I learned that we had a Catholic intellectual tradition that I was shocked that I didn't know about before. So I thought, okay, I've got to go into teaching. So I went to graduate school in philosophy. St. Thomas's philosophy was the big thing that got me. Um, went to the University of Toronto. Um, and there, a friend of mine who thought he had a vocation found out about a community in Montreal called the Oratory of St. Philip Neri. It was a brand new community um, founded in 1975. He joined in 1979. And when he did that, it kind of made me think again, maybe, maybe I'm supposed to be a priest. That thought that came, came and went a few times. Um, at the, and then they moved from Montreal to Toronto in September of 1979, uh, just after I had gone to Rome to teach for a semester for the University of Dallas, which has a sophomore semester program in Rome. So you weren't going to them up in Montreal. They thought they'd no. at least come to you. Yeah, they had the, 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 yeah. the mountain had to come to Mohammed. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, my, my friend wrote to me from Montreal and said, yes, I have joined just before they moved. Uh, when you're in Rome, would you please go to St. Philip's tomb in the Chiesa Nuova and pray for me and for us? So I had a kind of spiritual connection with with the Toronto Oratory uh, before coming back from, from Rome. And then Rome itself was an influence. We had this young new pope, you might have heard of John Paul II, <laughs> um, who was, golly, he was like nine years younger then than I am now, you know? <laughs> and it was it was it was long before before he hit the the bishop the Episcopal retirement age of seventy five in nineteen ninety five. Since then, we haven't had a pope under the age for a bishop's <laughs> retirement. Uh, but anyway, his he was doing his he was just starting his theology of the body talks at his Wednesday audiences, uh. and. Um, and so one of my colleagues, who's a Cistercian monk, said, this guy, this is good. There's going to be vocations inspired by this guy. And I, yeah, that hit into my head a little bit. <laughs> so um, when I came back from Rome, uh, I started going to the oratory for mass. And, and this was... days of confusion in the church that started 
in the middle 60s, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is now early 1980. And, and I had been part of a, a, a kind of community of graduate students, mostly uh, Catholic or Catholic-minded, who were, had been trying to discuss among ourselves what's happened. What's happened to the church? Why? What? And and uh, at the oratory, I saw these were priests who dressed like priests, <laughs> taught the Catholic faith from the pulpit, gave beautiful, did beautiful liturgy. Uh, we had there was a, a a Latin mass in the Novus Ordo, uh, which uh, I liked, loved, um, and then Father Robinson, Father Jonathan Robinson, who was the founder of that community, died two years ago. Um, invited me out to dinner, and I got invited. Started coming out for dinner for a regular time, and then being sat down by him, and he's telling me, "Well, I think maybe you're supposed to join us." <laughs> and eventually, I gave in, and uh, uh, I moved into the house first as a boarder, and I felt strange very quickly being the only one in the house not wearing a habit which was a strange feeling to feel strange about. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I uh, told him, okay, I think I, I, I give in. And he said, fine, we'll clothe you on Sunday, which was, it's totally contrary to the rules that we have about accepting the postulate. But we didn't have, being a new community, they hadn't really worked out the rules for this yet. Wow. Um, because I wasn't in the house as a postulant, I was in the house as a boarder. Now we have someone in the house as a postulant for a month after we've had him earlier for a week. Um, and then we vote about whether to accept him. And um, I was in the house for less than a month. And I said, okay, I give up. And I was clothed in less than a month. So it's closed on the feast of, of Saints Peter and Paul. Uh, and, I, and I moved in on the 1st of June. Wow. Just a martyr. There you are. 1st of June. Yeah. yeah. Great, great yeah. place to start. And how did you come then to find yourself in Germany? Some years later, and, okay. and happening upon so, this well, good bishop we're about to talk about. Um, my dad was of, of German descent. We weren't really quite clear where we were from in Germany. We've never totally sorted that out. But he spoke German. He used it in the war against the Nazis. Um, but um, he was. But when when I started high school, it was the first year that they reintroduced German as an op optional option for foreign language studies in my high school in Troy, Ohio, Troy High School. Reopened, you're saying? Did they yeah, cancel yeah, I mean, I think, I think it canceled during the war or before. I don't know when, but anyway, it hadn't been it hadn't been there. My two older brothers had a choice between Spanish, French, and Latin, and Italian was now, or sorry, German was now being offered, and so I, I did the three years of German, uh, and then a little bit more in university, and so I had an interest in being able to go there. Um, after I was at the oratory, um, our uh, superior founder, Father Robinson, who had been a, a knight, a chaplain to the Knights of Malta, knew through the Knights of Malta uh, a German nobleman, Dietrich Graf Spee, who lived in the Toronto area at that time. Um, and he had arranged for Father to spend a summer at a castle wow. in Germany, saying Mass in the Schlosskapelle, and it's and not. It was, it was the castle that's on the cover of the coffee table books really? about castles in Germany. <laughs> um, and subsequently, he had a letter from from a friend of his, an old lady, um, uh, 
uh, Countess of uh, Baroness Maria von Katteler, who said, why do you send the priests to other people and not to me? And <laughs> the thought that I wanted to get, maybe see, see if I could improve my German, which is in great need of improvement, um, got me an invitation to, to her house in, 1970, in 1989. She invited me to stay two, two weeks with her and then two weeks with, with her son Clemens and his wife Paula. And they um, were kind enough to say, you know, come back. So I went back again two years after that, three years after that, and really every two or three years I would go to visit some member of the Kettler family. Um, and um, can't say my German got totally better <laughs> from all that, uh, but uh, did, did have the opportunity to. To work on it a little bit. Just before we go on, what does being royal mean in Germany these days? Well, guys, these guys aren't royal. They were they were from nobility, old, excuse me, I old noble families, yeah. and it, it means it means nothing politically or legally now. All the uh, um, the Germans, as far as I understand it, did a slightly different thing from the Austrians. The Austrians just took away all all titles. Um, the Germans, you you end up making it part of your name, so you get Freiherr von something or other as part of your baptismal name is on your birth certificate. But being a Freiherr or a Baron or being a Graf, a Count, um, doesn't mean anything other than that you are part of this family and you learn something about this. The old kind of family traditions and the traditions of how somebody from uh, what the British might call a good family right, yeah. <laughs> um, ought to behave and ought to live. Right. So, so it yeah. is kind of an holdover of the past of yeah. a certain yeah. dignity of custom and such. Yeah. Okay. And and that, I think that depends on the family and, uh, and the individual. And maybe the house is, is yeah, just yeah. A, a physical representation yeah, of that yeah. too. <laughs> so I, I was once at a birthday party at which the... Um, the, the, the burgers were catered by a company called the Burger Prince. Now over here, Burger King is not a king, but over there, this was a real prince who ran this company where it had, had this little little truck with uh, in which they made fancy burgers. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope that they yeah. used some paprika or something fancy. <laughs> they were, they were, you know? That was yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> and so along this this along the way, you actually met the family members of. Blessed von Galen. So, Clemens August von Galen's mother was a Spee. So she's somehow related to Dietrich Spee, the one that we knew who lived in Toronto, who's now retired in Bonn. Um, Clemens August von Galen's paternal grandmother was a Kettler. So all the Kettlers were also related. So both of these families had something of a devotion to the Cardinal. Um, and uh, Dietrich Spee had given us two thick books in German, which were in our guest room, in case a guest came in who wanted to read German stuff, of sermons, letters, documents from the time that Clemens August von Gaulen became bishop in 1933 until his death. And I eventually, I also, I also met his nephew and a few of his daughters at different times. So I began to know more and more about this, this man uh, and um, 
how he spoke out against the Nazis. And um, sometimes for bedtime reading, I try to read, say, one of these sermons or a letter or something like that in, in these two thick books. Um, just a, a, a lot of dictionary help. <laughs> um, but eventually, um, as I'm going through this, I'm thinking, man, this guy is, this is fascinating stuff. I wish somebody would write a good book about this man in English so I don't have to slog through all this German stuff. But that didn't come out, and I kept slogging through all the German stuff and eventually said, well, okay, maybe I can try to do it. So that's the kind of origin of the, genesis, the line. The, yeah, of the, the origin myth of, of this book. Yeah. Well, so can you tell us then about, you know, so he himself comes from this noble family. Uh, comes and, from an old German family. Um that, um, you know, you trace your, I trace my family back to 1850 or so in Cincinnati, and yeah. he traces his family back to 12th or 13th century. Uh, <laughs> and uh, um, he was um, the 11th of 13 children, his they always say that the eleventh of thirteen children is going to make it big. Well, know? well, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or or end up in the church, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, but it's 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 not always what we might think. So I eventually came to visit the the house that he grew up in, um, which is called a castle, but. It's really like a big farmhouse and a barn with a moat around it, um, <laughs> and it's and it's yeah. that's key. And it's now it's now um, the his his nephew gave that property to a community of Benedictine sisters. Oh, so okay. some nuns live in that house now, and they but they have some some uh, memorabilia about him there, and helped me with my research. Um, They, when he was a boy, they lived a very, very strict kind of life. Um, no running water, um, no heat in, in most of the rooms. Um, you had to get up. Uh, you get up in the morning, you go across the moat around the corner to the chapel for, for mass. And uh, if you were late for a mass you got no butter for your bread at breakfast <laughs> and uh if you missed mass you didn't get any breakfast at all i think that was the story something like that so uh and he and his his the brother closest to him franz um were late one morning for serving mass uh and he said Franz, wake up, we got to serve. And, and Franz said, we may as well just lie in bed because we're not going to get breakfast anyway. So. <laughs> the real motivation. So, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yet, how strict this family was, it led to an immense amount of sanctity. I mean, yeah. not only do they have a son who's been beatified by Pope Benedict XVI, but was it two grandchildren were also beatified? So, no, what? So, this, this is one of his second cousins. Okay. Is, is beatified. Who's the, who's the, um, um, the uh, the nun who persuaded Leo the Thirteenth to consecrate the world. No, was it Leo the Thirteenth or Pius X to consecrate the world to the Sacred Heart in oh, eighteen ninety nine? Wow! wow. Yeah. 
she worked among uh, prostitutes in Portugal. Um, so yeah, so the, the, the tradition of service, whether in the church or to the state, was important because his father was, was in the Reichstag in, in politics. Um, his brother became a politician as well, and a soldier before that. Um, and uh, he came to the realization that he was called to the priesthood. And so, and he realized this. Um, no, no. At some point in your book, you mentioned that he was actually schooled in Austria because there was some okay trouble so, that was happening between <laughs> the okay, church and so, the state and Germany. The time. So this somehow goes back to Bismarck and the Kulturkampf, the kind of attack on the on the Catholic Church uh, in order to consolidate a united Germany about I think it was 1870 or so. 1970, um, uh, Bismarck wanted to um, lessen the influence of the Catholic Church. I don't know whether he was trying to build a national church or not, but you know the standard thing with with powerful politicians is uh, let's let's do things like get rid of the religious orders because they're a waste of time unless they're actually doing something practical. Maybe if they're teaching in schools or nursing, we might let them go. Um, so it's that's like Gerard Manley Hopkins' poem, The Wreck of the Deutschland, was from that time mm. about some nuns who drowned because the ship on which they were leaving the country foundered. Um, and... Uh, and Clemens August von Gallen grew up with stories about that. But still by the time that uh, he was in school, he went to a boarding school run by the Jesuits, but the anti-Jesuit laws were still on the books so that he couldn't get the, the abitur, the, the high school certificate of graduation from, from a, a Jesuit school. So he finished his high school back in his hometown. Gotcha. Um, and did the abitur there, and then went off to, to the seminary. And when he was in seminary, or rather after he's in seminary, he's he's placed in Berlin for a little while. Could you just give us a quick okay, snapshot so, of how Berlin versus Munich? And all like, right. So he, so it's he was culture. he he actually thought about becoming a Jesuit because he was educated by the Jesuits. Yeah. He ended up being ordained as a priest for the Diocese of Munster in 1905. We should get, he's born in 1878. All so right, that's helpful. We need Thanks to have a little, yeah. little uh, so he was ordained about, I think in 1905, um, served for a short time as chaplain to an uncle of his who was an auxiliary bishop and went around with him on confirmation tours and visits of the, of the diocese. Um, Berlin was part of, was part at that time of the diocese of Breslau Rotswaff, now in Poland, uh, home of Edith Stein. Ah, okay, thanks. Um, and um, largely a Protestant city for those who still had any belief, because in the early part of the 20th century, you have, have already kind of a loss of faith in the big cities. Um, you also have at this time a lot of people leaving the farm and going to the cities to work in factories. And uh, because of that, the, there was a significant number of Catholics, mostly young men, but not only, uh, moving to Berlin 
and there was a tradition that some of the other dioceses helped in some of the parishes in Berlin. So the Diocese of Munster looked after a big parish in the heart of Berlin, and von Gallen served there for over 20 years. Um, and first as an associate pastor, um, then he realized that these young men who were coming to work in the factories and other industries needed something, some housing and some kind of support for living a Catholic life. So he uh, built a, um, a home for young men coming to, to Berlin, uh, lived with them, paid for it out of his inheritance. It's one thing about that kind of family. I don't know. As the 11th child, he nevertheless had a huge inheritance <laughs> from his father, which he gave to this thing and built a church. For yeah, them. that's outstanding. I mean, that was one of the things that drew my attention to him, to, drew my attention to him insofar as he is already living in the in the mix of a huge societal change. Yeah. He has to go and be schooled in Austria because there is this subversions of authority in the German uh, understanding of, of the place of the church in the world. Also, well, uh, to be fair, I mean, I think yeah. it, it, this, this was a, an old boarding school that a lot of people wealthy and no, with people send, to send their anyway. sons to. Yeah. 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 And then, yeah. but he couldn't get his degree there because of the right. Yeah. Right. His high school diploma there. And then yeah. he has this, he sees in the, in the city, this changing demographic where people are leaving the mm -hmm. farms, going to factories. You know, yeah. we could probably discuss yeah. for a while what actually yeah. was the, the leading cause of a major shift, but it was a major shift, yeah. you know, th that's happening at this time of a major social order that's, uh, that's changing and turning into this, this modern way of, of living. And he's there to kind of catch the, the, He's the, try, try, try to do something to there. try to do something yeah. to keep these people living the faith, and yeah. and he sees in the people who've already been in Berlin for a while. He's just shocked to see Catholic parents who have no interest in in baptizing their children. Right. Yeah. Um, and then and then the kind of breakdown in morality. Yes, and that is uh, you know one of the lines that well maybe I'll let you share this that his his. Uh, you know, descendant shared with you about how they capture the dynamic of the family is that they were just absolutely <laughs> Catholic to the core. To the core, I won't steal the line, but you uh, got to share it with us. No, it's, it's his his uh, his nephew told me this that that uh, the cardinal told him. Well, he probably wasn't a cardinal when he told him, but but you know, we Gollans were not very smart, we're not very good looking, which isn't true. Aber wir sind brutal katholisch. We are brutally Catholic. <laughs> I just love that line. They're brutally Catholic. Yeah. So then I think that's what made me write the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got I got to write about this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to see then for a brutally Catholic, you know, man, parents not wanting to baptize their kids. Yeah, you know, what it's on nuts. earth is going yeah. on? I mean, this guy's Catholic to his core. This, yeah. is, this stuff yeah. is true. Yeah. It fundamentally alters everything in life. Yeah. What are you doing yeah. abandoning it? Yeah, you yeah. Know? And the and his whole life was based on. Corpus Christi procession, this feast, this, the whole, the church's calendar was the source of, of life. And the name days, you know, Germans are, a lot of other Europeans too, are bigger on celebrating your name days than your birthdays. So he would always send a letter off to a sister or a brother or a mom, a dad on their name day. 
when he was away from home. Wow. Yeah. You know, with all the siblings, he's asked to write one of those yeah, every yeah, single yeah, day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right. So he, he's in Berlin. He's seeing kind of the breakdown of the Catholic family. Yeah. He's and and really and then he lives through World Wars One. World War One. Yeah. Tell us about yeah, kind of yeah. his World War One experience. Where he, he was in Berlin. He was in Berlin for, for the war. war. So yeah. and then and then of course you have the entire shock of a great great percentage of the German people when they think they're winning the war because that's what their government propaganda tells them through the war and then all of a sudden oh by the way we lost <laughs> and and then by the way we've got a revolution and we're going to get rid of the emperor and, and like and there's complete overthrow of of the government and uh, of the of the not just the government the form of political life yep and and you do at this point have we'll get into this later a new surge of political theology that starts to come in and completely new way of thinking yeah. i mean carl schmidt is is starting to get his rise at this time and um, but we'll we'll so circle back to that and as we okay. go on so, and so he's uh he's seeing this and then when he what year does he return to munich Min munster or munster, munster. Sorry, he returns to munster yeah. in 1929? Okay, is it that late? Just, okay. He's there yeah, a long time yeah. in Berlin. And um, I think it was 23 years in Berlin. And the reason, the main reason the bishop calls him back to Munster, there are probably others, but one main reason that he calls him back to Munster is this... Uh, new national socialist movement is gaining adherence. And some of the parties that they were related with in the, in the Reichstag elections um, had gained some support among the Union of Catholic Nobles of Westphalia. The hope was that Father von Gallen and his brother Franz, who was a, in the center party, the so-called Catholic, the Catholic party in the in the Prussian um, parliament, uh, that they would be able to steer their fellow nobles into the direction of supporting the bishops in their condemnation of the Nazis and in, and in supporting the Central Party. So the, the bishops saw early on what National Socialism yeah. was. Yeah. All right. And there was yeah. no... The, the, national Socialism was condemned. Catholics were, were not permitted to take part in the National Socialist movement. Um, and I don't... I have no idea really how, how many Catholics disobeyed that. I think the, the, the ones whom, whom Gallen uh, was struggling with in the Union of Catholic Nobles, the Lunink brothers, um, were um, supporters of the, the German National Party, which was in, in working in conjunction with the Nazis, but, was not, but they were not directly supporters of the Nazi Party. Right. Until later, when the Nazi Party was the only party around, and they and they became officials in the government uh, for a time, 
they both saw that there was something wrong in this in the end and in the end one of them was a martyr was uh, killed for uh, participating in the attempt on Hitler's life in July right. 1944 there's a lot of martyrs in this story yep but early on i mean you know a lot of a lot of folks again it's embarrassing how poor our our kind of german history is mine, prior to the mine war. too <laughs> but yeah <laughs> but prior yeah. prior to uh you know really all of the uh euthanasia eugenics the the horrific things the holocaust that, that comes about later on what are kind of the telltale signs that the national socialists other than maybe the names giving it away uh that that the bishops you know pointed out early on and saying this is a problem this is why catholics can't join this party um well they had an, a kind of ideology of of That the the nation, the state, the well, the race really is what's divine, right? And uh, and this becomes clearer after they take power, and their uh, main minister of of Nazi Weltanschauung is is Alfred Rosenberg. Who writes this? Has written this book called *The Myth of the Twentieth Century*, in which Rosenberg um, says that, that basically we're bringing back the paganism of our ancestors, and maybe or maybe not calling it Christian, calling it Christian, but this is Christianity is, is so Christianity is being attacked by a pagan ideology, and an ideology that says that. Um, God is not a transcendent creator of the universe, but God comes to be through human decisions and God is coming to be the God that's coming to be is the, is the, the German national, um, Nordic Aryan race. And, and, and then combined with that is that, um, there's no such thing as a transcendent moral law. Uh, right and wrong is depending on what serves the interests of the race or not. It's amazing how it really is kind of Thomas Hobbes 101 and you had, you complete that <laughs> yeah, together with, yeah, yeah. Or, and, and of course there's this statement. I mean, you cite here that um, when uh, Bishop von Gallen reflects on the philosophy, the, the ideology that's being purported during the day. He says, this is even worse than what Satan did in the garden. He's not saying just that you can become God, but rather you can create God. Can, yep. Yep. And this is, yeah. I mean, this yeah. is a big problem. And the reason why obviously I bring out Hobbes is that the Leviathan, the God amongst us is our creation, but it's not just any one of us. It is once we bind ourselves together, we have a power greater than any okay one of yep us. yeah and okay then, that sounds like very uh yeah yeah and also that a, a power that no one person can actually control so everybody kind of thinks in this situation about hitler hitler's in control hitler is not in control yeah. he's following the whims of the people just as much yep. as they're you know feeling out his rhetoric and that mm. movement that's going on and so uh and so the the blessed bishop is is well excuse me priest father yeah, he's a priest at this Dalin point yeah. in this case yeah. starts to point some of these yeah. things out yeah. And uh, anyways, we can, we'll keep going in the biography and get okay. into the weeds in a bit. Sorry, okay. I'm getting well, excited too. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Uh, we both jumped around a bit. I think, yeah, so, so. <laughs> that's great. So, uh, so he, he's doing what the bishops ask him to do at this point. Yeah. Yes, and and he thinks this is this is his plum job in a sense. As a priest, he wants to serve. He is now, uh, so he's about fifty-two when he comes back to fifty-one, fifty-two when he comes back to to Munster. And he's pastor of the most central church and most important church in the city, um, outside the cathedral itself, and just which is just a couple blocks away. Um, and so he thinks this is this is this is it. This is where I'll finish the rest of my my life as as pastor of Saint Saint Lambert's Lambertikirche. Um, but then, sure, we're going into the next yeah, step. Let's do okay, it. yeah. yeah. Great. So then the the bishop dies in early 1933. <laughs> also in 19, early 1933, Adolf Hitler is named chancellor. <laughs> um an opposing bishop. Yeah. <laughs> so um what happens eventually it took some time uh for a new bishop to be named for Munster and eventually because the first person who was elected by the cathedral chapter decided on health grounds not to accept it. Now, I don't know enough about him. I think there may be an argument that he and another person who would have been elected in, the, in a subsequent vote um, also said, let it be known, that he wouldn't take the job. And I think both of these men knew that the, sitch, the, the times required a bishop with more strength than they had. Well, good of them to know that. Yeah. And so, von so, Gallen's name so von Gallen. So, um, it, it's it's kind of curious because he knew the Secretary of State Cardinal Pacelli, yes. who had been nuncio. In Munich and then in Berlin, so he was he knew he knew him well in Berlin. Uh, the famous Sister Pascalina, Pascalina, the, 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 who was his secretary, Pope Pius's secretary as Pope after he became Pope, um, um, said that uh, joked with Cardinal von Gallen when he came to Rome to become a cardinal after the war was over. Um, that um, you know the Pope knew very well that he wasn't really a very good preacher, um, <laughs> and um, he, in fact, he himself uh, was said to have been giving a catechism lesson to children uh, about their their need to get a new bishop and what a new bishop what a bishop ought to be like, and then to see if they were understanding the lesson, he asked the kids, you know, could I become bishop? Because <laughs> like Sister Pascalina couldn't, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I become bishop? And this little kid says no, because my dad says you totally can't preach, <laughs> right? right? And he became one of the greatest preachers that we've ever seen in the church. Um, so and that was the come. So anyway, so so he so the 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 way the election of a bishop worked for for Munster, and it was under under the Concordat, which that which um, the uh, Church already had with the Prussian government uh, was that a um, the, the, the cathedral chapter and different bishops and others would suggest a list of names to the nuncio f 
from these different lists, the nuncio would would come up with three names that the that the Holy Father would present to the cathedral chapter. The cathedral chapter would uh, choose from among those three names, and then the government had to give its nihil abstat. And uh, although many of the people who suggested names suggested von Galen uh, as a candidate, he was not on the first turna, the first list of three. And then the one who was elected didn't get, uh, didn't accept. So then the Holy See said, okay, choose from among the two left. And the one of those who would have been elected said, no, I, I won't take it if I get elected. And then you can't have an election with only one candidate. So <laughs> von Galen's name was added and then he was elected. And then eventually the, the government accepted. Um, so he was the first bishop chosen in Germany after the Nazi seizure of power. Uh, wow. That's quite a statement, especially given his... his uh, the, the, he probably did more in articulating the real philosophical problems of the Nazis amongst yeah. the priests at the time. Say one, or at least one of the top. Um, yeah, I... I I think there were some others who had more of a kind of philosophical bent who oh, did really? some things, okay. but yeah. um, and um, von Galen always said that that uh, he learned from his father, the politician, to study everything from the basis of first principles. Right, and and he was not a great scholar, but he could get a, he got a grasp of those first principles, and he could explain them very clearly. Um, as became evident yes. more later on. Yes. Um, so um, for some reason, the government didn't object to his choice. Yeah. And there were, there were people at the time who thought that he was sympathetic to Nazism. Um, Why? It, because... This is this is what happens when you label people, right? He's conservative. Ah, right. Yeah. Um, he's he's from an old noble family. He's a German patriot. Right. And and there were some aspects on which there was there were similar um, approaches that that uh, a lot of Germans agreed with the idea that the Peace Treaty of Versailles after the First World War was unjust to the Germans, right. and it wasn't only Germans who thought this. You're right, absolutely. Economic consequences of the peace. Yeah, um, and um, and then there were a lot of Germans who were not totally happy uh, with the revolution that overturned mm. the empire, the empire and. Yeah. and led to, and, and a lot of Germans who were not happy with the creation of Germany as a parliamentary democracy. And right. then the parliamentary democracy in that particular case didn't work very well. Yeah. Um, and uh, they had to keep having elections over and over again, and you ended up with having um, so many different parties, fights in the streets, particularly between Nazis and communists, and yet those two parties being the ones that had the strong, the largest number of seats, but they would never work together. Right. So, so something kind of not necessarily had to give, but 
Um, and we learned from Plato and Aristotle, don't we, that, that if, if uh, once a democracy doesn't work for a while, you're going to end up with a, with a di dictatorship or a kingship or something. Right? Absolutely. Right. Yep. So they were proven right again. In this <laughs> uh, so, so now Bishop von Gallen comes into power. And power. He, he comes in, well, comes into authority. Let's say that. How okay. about comes into to authority? Yeah. He is now pastor of Munster, uh, and things are getting progressively worse uh, during this time. That you have, uh, of course, you have um, the schools overturned, the crucifixes being taken out of schools, new curriculum being introduced. And this is, would you, is this really his first public battle with the state? So his first, his first um, complaint to the state on, uh, to a state official was uh, within a, a couple of weeks of his becoming bishop. Got busy was, right away. <laughs> uh, so probably background for a little bit, you know, that yeah. the, the Holy See had entered into a concordat with the new government. Uh, the idea was to um, get guarantees that the church could continue to function, have Catholic schools, direct the religious education of Catholic schools, have Catholic organizations of different kinds that were traditionally already in place. Um, and uh, also because Pacelli... Cardinal Pacelli, who later became Pius XII, knew very well that um, those guarantees that the government gave were probably going to be broken by the, the government because he knew the kind of people he was dealing with. Uh, at least it gave these agreements the status of an international treaty so that violations of this treaty could be complained about. Right, to the neighbors, yes. So... Uh, Catholic schools were still in existence um, in 1933, um, and the religious curriculum was um, supposed to be done in coordination with church officials, with bishops, basically, or their representatives. And the Minister of Education put out a lesson plan for the month of November, for the month of the Holy Souls, uh, which consisted in attacks on the Jews hmm. in every area of the curriculum. Wow. Everything. Like, okay, so can you give us an example? Econ yeah. Or economic or financial matters. We talk about how the Jews run the banks and they've caused, you know, they take over all the money. Right, right. right. Um, uh, ethnology, we're going to do masks about Jewish facial features. Hmm. Um, uh, the religion classes will be about how the Jewish people have corrupted every nation that they've ever been part of. It's horrible stuff. Yeah. And and uh, Bishop von Gallen wrote to the education minister and said, you know, this violates the principles of the Concordat, and it's kind of difficult to see how this particular lesson plan that you're drawing has anything to do with the month of the Holy Souls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he, Did he get a response? His, he basically got no response to that one. Um, and, um, and this became not only in, in Munster, but all throughout Germany, 
of the bishops systematically, and sometimes the Holy See directly, this is bishops systematically, would, would write a letter of complaint or issue some kind of uh, message to the appropriate government official every time the concordat was violated and often get no response, very, very, very rarely get a response saying, yes, you're right, we'll change this. Um, and uh, more often get the sort of delaying tactic that bureaucrats know how to yeah, use. Yeah, they're genius at it. Yeah, that's why they exist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, this eventually becomes a problem between Mongolan and other bishops. Um, How so? In that uh, he came certainly by 1936, if not by 1935, I can't remember exactly, to the conclusion that this policy of complaining behind closed doors, yeah. but keeping um, the public face of cooperation between this church and the state um, on, on proper sort of grounds, making, yeah. making it look good, um, was no longer working. And that the only way forward would be if we publicly protest every violation of the Concordat and every time that a bishop is thrown out of his diocese, which happened in one diocese. Um, and um, publicly say from the pulpit what's actually going on right. in Germany. Right, and instead, Cardinal and Bertram is Cardinal there. Bertram was the Archbishop of Breslau, so he was the head of the bishop's conference, the senior uh, bishop in Germany. Um, and he was of the policy of continuing the quiet negotiation kind of thing. He knew that the Nazis were bad news. Right, but that, um, what else are you going to do? And, and, uh, and he was older than von Gallen and more senior, and he'd, he, was, he remembered the, the Kultur Kampf as a child. And that was that was bad. So I, um, but the the crucial thing here was that Van Gaal knew that we can't. I can't decide as an individual bishop to take this on because we have to speak as a united front. Sure. Because if we're if they divide us up from each other, we're sunk. Right. Yep. That's true. And, but also, I mean, just kind of later part in, in your book, you mentioned that Goebbels. Uh, thought that they should not attack. Once I'm kind of giving away a little part of the story here, Bishop von Gallen does start to go after the Nazis, and Goebbels has to make a decision. What do we do? How yeah, do we retaliate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he is, as you yeah. put it in, in the book, that in his opinion, it was best during the war to try as much as possible to steer the churches in the direction of the regime rather than right. to provoke them. So actually, right, right. ironically. But Cardinal Bertram was suggesting actually yeah. fitted perfectly. It doesn't look like... Worked well for the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. worked yeah. great for the yeah. Nazis. Yeah. It was yeah. the very thing they wanted yeah. the cardinals to do, the bishops to do, yeah. to just seem like there is some peace. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and 
also, I mean, Van Gallen would have been happy with that in a way, in that, in in that, what he hoped for at the start was that, you know, sorry, this is the government we're stuck with, and he was very, very, very strong on the idea that a legitimate government compels the obedience of its subjects unless it's telling them to do something sinful, right? Yeah, it, or unless it's doing something fundamentally unjust. Right. So. Um, so he wants to find peace if it's if it's possible. Sure. Yep. Yep. And uh, this just became he, impossible. He came. Simple. He came to the conclusion earlier than Cardinal Bertram did that it was impossible. So you, <laughs> yeah. you said a moment ago that it was 19, around 1936, 1937, and at this time, Pius XI already sees what's going on and that things aren't going well, and something mm -hmm. does need to be spoken of publicly, and so he calls. Bishop von Gallen, um, and, and one other to begin to consult with him on a new encyclical. It's, it's, he calls five bishops oh, is it that to many? Rome. Okay, I'm and he, and uh, and he's sick at the time, right? Uh, but he knows that the situation in Germany is bad. There's, there's systematic violations of the Concordat. Um, uh, very, very clear that. Um, uh, as you put it in diplomatic things, the other contracting partner in this treaty is not is violating the terms of the treaty. Right. <laughs> uh, the one partner being the German state and the other partner being the Holy See, because it's really concordat with the Holy See, not with the German bishops and such. Um, so naturally, he calls for consultation the three senior bishops of Germany, the three cardinals. Um which is Bertram Frings. Uh, don't, don't ask me. You, you, you can read it in my book. Um, and, um, but then two bishops, both of whom are noblemen, um, and both of whom are very outspoken opponents of Nazism, von Gallen of Munster and von Preising of Berlin. And it seems that in the conversations in Rome, uh, Cardinal Bertram was still arguing for continuing the policy as it was, and was also saying um, critical things, let's say, of Van Gallen, um, uh, thinking that Van Gallen thinks he can boss us bishops around as if we're Westphalian peasants. <laughs> um, but uh, the Pope and um, Cardinal Pacelli, not far away from becoming Pope, a couple years away from becoming Pope, um, agree that something stronger needs to be done and write an encyclical letter. Did you want to? Sure. Yeah. Well, this is, yeah. I mean, this is kind of a firebrand encyclical level on so many fronts. I mean, it's respectful uh, insofar as they say that we're searching for peace, that we're, that we are hoping that the Concord might be recognized, even though we expect that it won't yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we need to return back to these first principles. Where did we get wrong here? And, you know, we'll go through this more carefully, but one of the major things that they bring up at the beginning is, well, certainly there's this there's this predicament where the state is being considered 
idolatrously. I mean, as, it, as God, as divine, as, yeah. as divine. The state is divine, or the race is divine, or maybe it's this one man who's divine. Because at one state, one place in Brandenburg's Orga, the encyclical that came out, um, the uh, the Holy Father is clarifying religious terminology because because this this ideology has taken religious terminology to itself. Right. Yes. Right. The Nazis have been saying, um, "We're the only people who have faith. We've been believers for a long time. You Christians, you Catholics, don't have faith." And well, you know what they, you, you, yes, we've been believers in a certain ideology of, of the German race. If that's what belief means, that that's not really what the Catholic Church understands by belief. We believe in a transcendent God, and you guys don't, right? So, um, and um, and so, Pius clarifies the meaning of terms like God, like faith, um, and and says that. It, and and this is echoing things that Van Gallen wrote back in 1934. Right. Yep. Uh, when he first started attacking Rosenberg in a public way, which we skipped past. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, we, yeah. Maybe this is the time we can we can start to hit on yeah. some of that and move on in the stories. Yeah. So so, but part of that was also yeah. you know if if you give kind of divine authority or give, or give a kind of sense that 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 this that a man no matter how great a man he is is sort of like divine or if you put him on an equal equal level with Christ then that's that's wicked and evil and false right and that's what yeah what is really being communicated german ideology was the nazi ideology was te teaching about hitler the, yeah so to read it directly from the encyclical Pius the Eleventh, you know, with von Gallen's help here, writes, "Whoever exalts race or the people or the state or a particular form of state or the depositories of power or any other fundamental value of the human community, however necessary and honorable their function in worldly things, whoever raises these notions above their standard value and divinizes them to the idol to an idolatrous level." distorts and perverts an order of the world planned and created by God. He is far from the true faith in God and from the concept of life which that faith upholds. Now this, as you as you know, is kind of harkens back, or there's some resonances here to what were pastoral letters, even when he was just a priest, I mean, which yeah. is kind of incredible. I mean, yeah. You know, the, or newspaper articles, too. Or newspaper right. articles. Yeah. And yeah. I, I want to yeah. just read newspaper one, and, okay. and then I want to, you know, I expect that you write newspaper articles now, just like this, as you're saying. <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> so this, this is... I have to get permission to write books. Newspaper articles are out of the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this, he writes... The idea of the state as God, the idea of an all-powerful, boundlessly mighty state, owing no duties to anyone, that that was the sickness of the German ideology. It says, Prussian Germany did not understand how to earn the inner loyalty of its citizens. So let me just interrupt for yeah, a second. Please. So this, this was... This was this was the pre-World War I government he's talking about. This is, this is the government of the emperor. This is 1918 yeah, when he writes yeah, this. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. And he's yeah. seeing this transition. Yeah, but they this, they this were world. already thinking that of a state as all-powerful. 
That's right. Yep. yep. And that was that was why the revolution happened. Right. Or why the revolution succeeded. Right. Yeah. And, it, yes. So here we go. Prussian Germany did not understand how to earn the inner loyalty of its citizens. The state was constantly putting itself first. That above all else was what alienated its citizens. The state is everything. The individual person is nothing. He has no freedom, no rights, no self-determination other than what the state confers upon him. The state is the only source of rights. That is where the central point of the national blame is to be found. That is the sickness that brought down our German empire, despite its apparent splendor. Mm-hmm. So, 20 years later, they're making the same exact mistake. But but I, just before, it, it seems almost crazy, maybe if we just hear these words, that uh, this idea of divinizing the state... I, I think we're we're starting to do that again, you know, in many ways. And we were chatting this morning about um, this idea that that he brings out here when the when this all freedoms and all rights that a person has is derived from the state, whether or not you're making the move to say, well, yeah, the state's God, it's making that explicit. There is the yeah. absolute conference of divine power upon the state if you're if you're doing something like that if you, if you say the state grants rights rather than that the rights are inherent in the human person created by god right that's yeah. that's the problem and so and of course you know this is so clearly demonstrated within abortion or even with eugenics or euthanasia yeah. Yeah. where it's decided well actually the state has the right to decide who lives who dies and you know some of were mentioning this morning that even the decision you know even with glorious Dobbs, the overturning of Roe, right. there that there's still implicit within that decision that the state or now states have the decision whether sure. or not to confer the right of life upon somebody. That there we're still sure. stuck in that same ideology. Sure, I mean you know Roe made the point at some point that of course if it were proved that human life begins at conception, then you'd have a person there, and that and that person would be inviolable. But Dobbs in overturning Roe doesn't go back to that point. Doesn't overturn it on that basis. Right. Yes. Just right. that there's a confusion. There's this plethora of ideas of what freedom is and, and this such. And this just needs to be debated yeah. amongst the states. And it's really an issue. It's really an issue of constitutionally. Is this something that, that judges should decide or is it something that the legislature should decide? Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. So we're, we're kind of stuck in the same yeah. idea. We're not calling the state God, yeah. but... We're conferring upon the state these these divine attributes. Von, Von Gollen is calling this out, saying this was our problem yeah. in Imperial Germany. Then he's yeah. helping Pius the Eleventh again call it out the yeah. Nazis yeah. again, and and this is the battle yeah. that's raging. Stats omnipotence, yeah. State omnipotence, yes. Yeah. That's yeah. Stats absolutismus, absolutism of the state, and and he tied it in with with legal positivism. Right. And every a law becomes a law if it's passed by whatever the governing power is, right. regardless yes. of whether it violates fundamental human rights or some other principle that ought to be uh, respected because of God's creation. Right, and and this is uh, you know this is really coming up head on into a lot of German theorists at that mm-hmm. time. I mean, 
uh, Carl Schmitt, who ironically a lot of Catholics are, are holding on to today. And uh, he was writing right around the same time, publishing books like Political Theology and and the concept, and the political concept, or however you want to translate that, the concept of the political, where he's making the case that there is no higher authority than the state, that the state is where the buck stops, mm. and that he ultimately came to defend and side with Hitler, not because he was won over by a prophetic preacher, as it were. This mm-hmm. is how uh, one of one great. Uh, a scholar working on on Schmidt has put it, but because his theory led him to the belief that he had to go along with where the state authority brought him, and so here you have this this absolute reversal in von Gallen, yeah. saying we've we've misunderstood this, and then Pius the Eleventh actually in this encyclical does a fabulous job of saying, well, let's reconsider how law is created again. That everything does emerge from God, revealed in natural law, and that all human law is in some cases a derivative of the natural law. But but it is through sin and through our guilt that we begin to have a cloudy vision of the natural law, which is ultimately when he says why we need the church to direct us, to redirect us in Revelation, to help us there. But, but that positive law system that you're talking about is, is now a completely different game than what the church has taught. Nothing derives from nature. Nothing is directed back to nature by the church. It is just by the pure declaration of peoples. I mean, we're stuck in a pretty dark place at that yeah, point. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, we, were, we went back and forth in email about this a little bit, but the, um, when, uh, I you know I just had the Reichstag building in my mind when yeah. when when Benedict the Sixteenth. Just gonna yeah, yeah, ask you about that. Yeah. yeah, when he he went to Germany to speak before the Parliament, he brings up many of the same things that that Pius Eleventh and 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 Blessed von Gallen, whom he beatified a few years earlier, uh, discussed. And he not only citing some of the exact same church fathers and the exact same passages as him, but even comes to this idea of saying the state authority cannot just be this legal structure, cannot have this, you know, buck ends with it. And he, he, he turns to them and he says, when it comes to the decision of a democratic politician, the question of what now corresponds to the law of truth, what is actually right and may be enacted as law is less obvious it says in terms of the underlying anthropological issues what is right and may be given the force of law is in no way simply self-evident today he puts it in another way when he's talking to the british government and saying if if the best that you have to go on is just a collective decision of a people how can you be assured that that is a proper correspondence to truth the same idea here. Same idea, and, and Van Gallen said it a hundred years ago. <laughs> uh, you know, that uh, um, if if the people or a legislature or a dictator is the source of authority, the ultimate source of authority, yeah. then uh, this opens up the door to perpetual revolution yeah the war of all against all mm-hmm. 
Um, and and it, what intrigues me about Van Gallen is that he has a very, very, very strong sense of the authority of the state when it's within its legitimate grounds. Sure, yeah. The authority of the state comes from God. And that's why he, he was upset with the, uh, the new uh, constitution after, the, it was, I think it was 1922, uh, after the, or maybe it was 1920 when the Weimar Republic was set up because they were going to say that the power comes from the people. Said, no, no, no. Power authority comes from God. Right. And if you don't, you know, what, you, what you can say is that the people can decide how to elect the exercise of the people who exercise that authority. But when they exercise that authority, unless they go beyond the bounds of their authority, the only reason they have the right to command our conscience is because, as Scripture teaches us, authority comes from God. Yep. So this popular sovereignty myth is really the thing that he was attacking, that Pope Pius XI was attacking, that Pope Benedict XVI was attacking, yeah. on this one yeah. fluid motion yeah. here, saying we've, yeah. we've really lost the plot if this if this is the idea that we're going for. Well, I would just want to encourage your readers to read, to, to, to your listeners to read that talk of, of Pope Benedict XVI at the Bundestag. Yeah. That is a brilliant piece of work. Yeah, sure is. No, we're, so now that we kind of have more of our political, theological, um, you know, uh, straps on, how does he then start to realize, we'll, we'll start to apply it in so far as that he is recognizing an unjust government, one that is self-appointed, uh, that is emerging out of pure agreement, that is also, you know, doing what even Satan didn't, did, didn't do in, in creating its own God. He, uh, where, where's kind of the major issues that he, he then goes back home from Rome to, to fight? So, uh, first thing, there's the practical thing that happens with regard to this encyclical, which I think is very fascinating. Okay, yes, right? please. Pius XII, Pius XI, sorry, writes Mitt Brandinger's organ, sends it in secret to all the bishops, um, announced, has them have it read from the pulpits on Palm Sunday. Um, and somehow all of this was done and spread throughout the country without the Nazi spies knowing about it. That's extremely impressive. Until, until the priests get up, everywhere in Germany on Palm Sunday, and while the priest at the altar is quietly in the old mass reading the Gospel of the Passion, Somebody's at the microphone reading out the Pope's encyclical letter to the people. Um, and um, Van Gallen also did, had more copies of it printed than any other diocese. Almost half of the total copies in all of Germany, about 120,000 copies were printed by one publishing house in secret, working day and night by the light of the moon at nighttime um, over about five days, because that's all the time they had to do this, so that these things could be handed out to people in the churches and, and, and distributed throughout the diocese. Wow. Could be handed out. Um, and um, the next step for him was trying to encourage Cardinal Bertram and the other bishops, we need to keep talking about this. Because the reading of the encyclical not only brought new 
hope and strength and encouragement to Catholics. It also brought hope and encouragement and strength to Protestants, Jews, unbelievers of good of good conscience, uh, to say that you know that there's all sorts of evil already being done by our government, um, and the Church is standing up for fundamental human rights. Um, and if we don't seize this opportunity to continue to press on this, um, it's already clear from, from the silence of the official newspapers and so on that the government, that the uh, authorities are trying to uh, cause this to just disappear uh, under a cone of silence. Yes. Um, so let's, so again, every time there's a violation of the Concordat, Every time there's a violation of fundamental human rights, we need to speak about it publicly from every pulpit. All the bishops need to agree that we do this. Um, and, uh, and we will also be building a coalition, not only of Catholics, but non-Catholics as well, who, who see that you know, we're speaking on behalf of, of everybody's right to life, right to property, um, things like that. Because implicitly, I mean, the, the expropriation of Jewish properties, for instance, was in, included in this as something of, as a fi violation of fundamental human rights. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then that started to happen to Catholics. Yeah. And that's really what set them off. That was kind yeah. of the, as far as I've been able to tell, that's the uh, straw that breaks the camel's back, as it were. Uh, so now we're jumping to 1941. I guess it's going to be a okay. few years, yeah. Okay. Which, is, right? which is which is yeah. which is fine because this is this is what he's most famous for. His three famous sermons of the summer of 1941. Um, but I'm glad we spent this time on this other yeah, material absolutely. because when I started to do my research, it just, you know, he didn't just do this out of the blue in 1941. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, he did he did cool stuff before. I, guess. <laughs> I, I have an, uh, an anecdote that forgot to bring up oh um, gosh that was prior the yeah some sometime in the mid-30s well the, because he's he's preaching against ideological things that the knots that that rosenberg yeah. is doing and he's preaching he's trying at that stage to separate off hitler from hitler's men because hitler had said when the concordat was signed and when he took power that the christianity is the basis of this new new germany world then German, ideolo German ideologues, Nazi ideologues, are defining their own notion of Christianity, which has nothing to do with Christ. Um, and so he accuses them of violating this, the, the Fuhrer's word by bringing in religious controversy, where he says he doesn't want to have religious controversy. So the story is that at one point he was preaching about family life, and there was, there, there were always um, Nazi informers in the church or cathedral, wherever he was preaching. At this point, um, he's preaching about family life, and there were, and one of them heckled and said, "Celibates have no business talking to us about family life." pounded his hand on the pulpit and he said, I will tolerate no reflection on the Fuhrer in my cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chase is, is, Mist, a, is a virgin, right? Mis yeah. Mr. Celibate Hitler, who's, who's devoted his whole life to 
service of his people, right? <laughs> right? Who teaches us all about family life, yeah, but he himself is celibate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's getting right yeah, in their teeth yeah, at that point. Yeah. I just yeah. love to hear the room uh, react to that. <laughs> so, um, in 1941, at this stage, Germany is at war. And actually doing very well in the war. Partly, only partly because we're not in it yet, yeah. Americans. Back-to-back um, <laughs> -back World War champions here, yeah. Well, you know, we have to, we have to realize like, like, the Russians have a lot to do with yeah, it. Yeah. And that's, that's a real problem historically to deal with. But. However... Um, 1941, the Royal Air Force starts bombing cities. And they bomb Munster. And some people are killed and lots of property is damaged. And just at that time, the authorities come in to the houses of some of the religious orders and tell the priests, brothers, nuns, depending on which kind of community it is, uh, we are expropriating your property. You must leave the city. You must leave the province like within 24 hours. And this made him furious, not only because it was a theft of property, yep. but also because it was implying that these people, these religious, were some way, in some way enemies of the state. And therefore, their property could be taken. Right. And they could be left as, as refugees to go find some other place in Germany to live. He provided a place at one of his family homes for some of them to go. Oh, did but, he? I did. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I asked his nephew to to do so, which he did. And um, the um, at this point, this was this was only found about fifteen or twenty years ago, I think. He wrote a letter to a fellow bishop uh, in the nearby diocese of Osnabrück, Bishop Burning, and said, "I'm finding it hard to." keep to the position we've been taking of going along with Cardinal Bertram's, yeah. you know, he's, uh, I've always told myself he's, he's senior, he's got more wisdom. Um, but, uh, I'm finding it hard to, and I, and I always said that if I, that if I go out, if I go out in, into public on my own, I might make things worse for the church and for them. Uh, but I can't, uh, I can't, do this anymore. Yeah. And in early July, he got into the pulpit of the Lamberti Church, the church where he had been pastor, because the cathedral had been bombed, it was no longer usable, um, and outlined in detail just what had happened. Houses of religious orders had been stolen. Um, and then he, he went from there into a direct attack on the secret state police whom we know of as the Gestapo. And he says, 
you might have the quotations, but it's it's uh, it's uh, none of us is basically none of us is safe because the Gestapo uh, has its own concentration camps. It's not answerable to any court for what it does, and it happens over and over again that um, people who are acquitted of a crime or who have done a crime and done their time are then hauled off by the Gestapo into their concentration camps and there's no recourse for them. And we don't know how to communicate with them. We don't know where they are. And he, he details uh, some uh, of his own priests who are in concentration camps with no charges having been laid against them and no understanding of what they've supposedly done. Um, and... Um, and he says, none of us, no matter how faithful and good a German we are, is secure. None of us knows whether he might be arrested and put in a concentration camp at any time. This could happen to me. Of course, he knows very well it could happen to him now because he's of what he's saying, right? right? Right at this very moment. This could happen to me at any time. And so I'm going to speak out now on behalf of truth and on behalf of justice. And that... Uh, quotes the ancient maxim, justice is the foundation of states, and says that if we do not restore justice in our country, then no matter what victories our brave soldiers gain in the battlefield, Germany is decaying from within, and it will collapse upon itself. Yeah. So this is the first of his great First sermons. of the three great sermons of 1941. What's the immediate effect of this sermon? The people in the congrega congregation were outraged, upset, uh, and, and uh, this as, was as a already mentioned, public knowledge at the time. Like he's breaking this yeah, news. He's breaking the, the news. Yeah. Breaking, I mean, some of them must have known because you've, if you yeah. saw the Gestapo come to, if you would live nearby this, this monastery or whatever, and saw these people being exiled, you'd, you'd know something. But, um, He has kept a couple copies of it aside, and he told his secretary, he, he assumes that the, the Gestapo are going to come and want a copy of the sermon. And he says, give it to them. I've kept some copies behind. Um, the Gestapo don't come for whatever reason. Huh. Um, the, the, there were a number of priests present in the cathedral. They're really happy <laughs> because they're getting leadership and guidance from their bishop, and it's really strong leadership. And one of them borrows a copy from the secretary and makes more copies of it. And then this starts to spread like wildfire. And like over the, over, within a couple of days, there are copies of the sermon being spread across Germany. Um, and to, to short circuit on that one, eventually they get, they, they're, they're spreading everywhere. They get into the hands of the British. The British start printing copies of it and dropping them from planes. Wow. All over Germany. Can you imagine that? So, so, writing something and then somebody's dropping your book all over the entire country. <laughs> don't, yeah. don't get hit. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, the museums in Munster, they have, they have copies. They have one of some of these leaflets. There's, there's a leaflet with a photograph of somebody else. It's <laughs> supposed to be with Van Gallen. But, uh, but, but the text was there. Yeah. Um, That's what and um, 
this, by the way, this this has a great influence on 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 Hans and Sophie Scholl and the White Rose movement. Ah, right. Yeah. Can you tell us about the White Rose move, movement? So, um, uh, there's a wonderful movie, um, Sophie Scholl, The Last Days, a German movie with subtitles. Uh, that's very very well done. So they were university students. Hans had her brother had spent some time in the army. Um, but they were in Munich um, and starting to issue leaflets, students and some professors, and um, leaflets saying that this government is corrupt, that Hitler must go. Pretty strong stuff. Um, and that we need basically to sabotage the war effort and various things like that. Fungala never went that far, but these guys did. But what really got them started was receiving anonymously a copy of one of Fungalan's sermons in the mail. Wow. Hans Scholl read this sermon and said, we need to get a duplicating machine. <laughs> and they did, and they were secretly printing these, these leaflets. Um, that's, I forget whether it's 42 or 43. Um, and um, Hans and Sophie Scholl are putting these leaflets out in the atrium of the University of Munich uh, while everybody's in class so they're just going to come out of class they're going to see these things and, and they push some of them over the ledge so they start fluttering through the air and then, and then start to leave but, and a janitor catches them Oh man! And they get handed over, and they get hauled before this notorious, horrible judge, Roland Freisler, um, who's, who's a judge at the People's Court. <laughs> it was called, but he's he just he he berates the defendants in the witness box. He doesn't allow them to say what they want to say. He, he he's supposed to be a judge, but he's telling them what what vermin and slime they are and so on and so <laughs> forth and then condemning him to death and Hans and Sophie Scholl were beheaded by the guillotine that was the standard way to one of the standard ways of, of killing people who have done something against the state um, so um, yeah you said earlier there are lots of martyrs in this story. These the, the, these are among them, and, and so, as some other friends of theirs were were um, executed later. Um, so um, this first sermon starts to have that effect. Um, the next week. He steps up again, this time into the pulpit of the Church of Our Lady. And this time he officially, he, he, he directly draws a distinction between the enemy, the foreign enemy, and the enemy within. And this is, this, this goes back to World War I, right? Because the, 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 the stab in the back legend that, that Germans thought that their armies out in the field were stabbed in the back by the politicians at home. Right. Right? Yeah. But now he's saying the people doing the stabbing in the back are the Gestapo. 
They're the enemy within. They are undermining the foundations of the German state. And more expropriation of property has taken place. Um, and then he um, goes briefly into all the different ways in which the Call it the state, should we call it the government, should we call it the ideologists, yeah, call it the Nazi the party, the right uh, term, yeah. in, in, in which the rights of God have been violated because natural law has been violated. And goes through the Ten Commandments, starting from, well, it doesn't go through nine and ten, which are the tens and thought, <laughs> but eight through one, wow. um, that every one of these has been publicly, sort of in an official way, violated or preached against by our government and its ideologies yeah. ideologists during the last years and what he's concerned about is that is and what he was concerned about when he was dealing with trying to protect the catholic schools too was that our young people are going to be drawn away from the faith mm. and he's often reminding parents of their sacred responsibility and in this particular case he brings in an image of the hammer and the anvil. He says, people are beating upon us in order to try to break us away and form us into a different kind of faith from the faith of our fathers, from the Catholic faith. But, he said, go to the blacksmith shop, ask the smith, thing that's formed is formed by the anvil just as much as it is formed by the hammer and the anvil lasts longer so you need to be hard and strong and tough like the anvil some of the the monuments of of von Gallen throughout in different parts of germany have this have images of anvils and hammers on them oh really because oh, this became um this 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 was this man who had this reputation of not being able to be a very good preacher, yeah. <laughs> but this came to him somehow, and he, he worked this 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 image in that uh, be strong, be firm, resist. You will resist the hammer's blow. Um, and the I guess consoling image of it despite the fact you're getting banged around because he's also saying you know if, if you're going to be um persecuted well blessed are you <laughs> yeah, right. which, he, which he says about the religious in the same sermon right you, and this is i mean just to connect a few different dots of other things that are, are put elsewhere that he sees this this persecution coming yeah. years out now it's in, in, in and so does Pius in the, in in Midbrander Zorka, yeah, which uh, he may have gotten. Yeah, yeah let right. me read both of those. So right. this yeah. is a sermon I think from 1936, and he says, "This is this is so good. I'm going to read a good bit of it. Like Christ, like the apostles, like the holy martyrs, we are obedient to authority, loyal to our people, conscientious in our professions, in our work, in our families, in our communities, willing to sacrifice." even to the risk of our lives, like St. Victor and all holy soldiers, like our brave soldiers who risked and gave their lives for our German fatherland and the thousands in the world war. He's talking about the first one there. But if, like those saints, 
we are put to the test and made to choose between earthly success and the confession of our faith, between the service of idols and death, then we want, like those brave models, we seek to emulate, to stay firm in the faith with the help of God's grace. We want, like them, to die rather than to sin. Death rather than sin. That's just amazing. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, just incredible. Yeah. And in particular, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's so hard. You know, we were thinking about this when, when considering Blessed Franz Jägerstater, that there's a matter of uh, denying the faith with our words. You know, sometimes that comes in life, but very, very rarely do we really get to the point where we're, you know, making the choice whether or not to stomp on the crucifix. But he, he brings up here is the service of idols, you know, as, as the, as the problem. It's like, do we help to reinforce this mass idolatry or do we begin to fight against it? You know, that is the thing that is actually more prominent, the prominent problem in our lives, the thing that we all do face. Anyways, and then there's this, I just, I, I love this phrase, maybe more than any of the others that, that he helped Pius the 11th with. Yeah. The Pope writes, our wholehearted paternal sympathy goes out to those who must pay so dearly for their loyalty to Christ and the church, but directly the highest interests are at stake with the alternative of spiritual loss. Excuse me, I'm reading this wrong. But directly the highest interests are at stake with the alternative of spiritual loss. There is but one alternative left, that of heroism. That of heroism. You got wow, one choice wow, to be a hero. Wow, That's wow, it. Wow. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just incredible. So this second sermon comes. They, that, I, can I go back? Because that sermon from uh, yeah about St. Victor that you were talking about. Um, so... Um, yeah, early 1936, um, St. Victor was a Roman soldier okay. who was killed because he couldn't anymore serve the idols. Uh. And so Van Gallen in 1936, in blessing a church that was or blessing a, a chapel that was dedicated to where St. Victor's um, relics had recently been found or thought to have been found and maybe really found that uh, he connects St. Victor in this way to the situation of Germans yeah. in 1936. But he also intriguingly says St. Victor was obeying the emperor because yeah. the emperor said, Either worship these idols or die. So he died. So he didn't fight back against his yeah. fellow souls <laughs> legionaries. So you obeyed him in that regard. <laughs> yeah. That's hysterical, actually. Yeah. Turn on everything. And uh, um, and, and then and and then he told his people, you know, the Acts of the Apostles. The apostles say, you know, um, we have to obey God rather than men when they're told not to preach in the name of Jesus. Right. Death rather than sin is ancient, right. ancient saying, and 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 he quotes and he does it again in in these nineteen forty one sermons. I forget which one. Um, uh, a German nobleman from a previous century, under the time of Frederick the Second, who was asked by the king, told by the king, to do something unjust, 
Uh, and the king says, don't you know that I could have you beheaded if you don't do what I tell you to do? And he said, my head stands at the king's pleasure, but not my conscience. <laughs> and that's what he told his people that they should. Yeah. I mean, it is one thing to kind of, I mean, he prepared them well for the persecutions ahead. Yeah. But then in the midst of it saying, yes, you are currently being, this, you are here. Yeah. They are here. You are the anvil. You're being beaten upon. Yeah. Just recognize that you're not a hammer. You are the you are the anvil. Yeah. So all the I mean, it's, what a message! It's to stay hear. strong. Stay strong. Stay firm, and the anvil lasts longer than the hammer. Now, is was it? I mean, do I have this right that in between sermons two and three, so of his three great sermons, there was a bombing of his home, or is that afterwards? That's later. That's, 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 later. that's, 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 that's after later. the third. That's, that's 1943. Things. Oh, it's two years yeah, two later. Years later. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. we have we have these sermons and then the carpet bombing really starts to happen. This right so so the strategy of going over a particular town with the ally strategy. Yeah. Do you want well, to introduce that, this to that had already been happening and he his his house had been hit. Sorry, by the first bombings even before the first sermon. That's right, because but, that's but why the, he had to but preach the, the really bad one yeah. was in in 1943. So could you just describe um, for us what these carpet bombings okay. were? Yeah. How so they would... Do you, would... you want to do that now? Or to, well, so that was famous. What was the guy named Bomber Harris? Was the was the British guy who thought that, that our great success in the war would come from getting the Germans so demoralized because we keep bombing their cities. Right? And... I don't know enough about the his, the military strategists and the because I think some of them have said you know if we continued bombing the dams and destroying the industrial capability we might have finished the war a lot earlier, and and it's and it's turned out in other historical situations that bombing cities to destroy the morale of the enemy often has an opposite effect. Yeah. Right? Yep. Um, Vengeance rage. Is, yeah. So uh, so. The, the, the British were doing this at night, send a whole bunch of bombers in formation till they get to the spot that is the place where they're told, here's where you drop the bombs, and let them all go. And so you're just flying across a, a, a city, or could be a... Could be a railroad yard or a, or a munitions factory or a huge plant or something like that. It could be a city. And just drop thousands of bombs. Yeah. A carpet. <laughs> right. And so the re- reason why I want to bring this up after this, this second major sermon is because his home was hit. He hears the sirens going off and he hears some of the bombs starting to be dropped and he has enough presence of mind to move into this doorway between his bedroom and his study. And I mean, this is just one of the amazing images that you, that you, you provide for us is that his bedroom blows up on, on his right. Maybe you could say, and on his left, his study blows up. And the only thing that's left is the wall itself supported by a chimney that's there giving it stability and so by the time was it who was his doctor came around or, that, or Father Portman Father it, Portman his secretary yeah. and somebody secretary. else came along too and he's 
So, so this is yes, we're jumping ahead because this is October 1943, and this yes. is this is yeah. us Yanks doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's us. This is Americans, and yeah. Yeah. um, and one reason why he didn't get to the air raid shelter at that time was that this was in the daytime, on a sunny day, and bombing raids had always been at night. So the air raid signs going in the daytime. That's the yeah. And and in fact, um, we didn't continue that practice very much because a, f- a fair number of bomb bombers were shot down doing yeah. it that way. Yeah. So 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 he he stuck. You know, he doesn't so, believe it. He doesn't so, move. Yeah. So he's he's stuck with his Episcopal palace sort of collapsed around him, and this one staircase and chimney sort of where he's standing and. And um, and there's some stuff burning around him, and he's trying to look for water to see if he can put that out. And he's he's scratched; he's not badly hurt, thank God. But he's um, uh, his his secretary comes along, and of course there's there's dust flying everywhere. But he sees the bishop up there. Yeah, uh, so he's like two, three stories up, yeah, right? I mean, there's yeah. not. I mean, I, it's it's yeah. crazy this image yeah. that's in yeah. my mind, where it's just yeah. there's yeah. runes and runes and. There's a bishop up there. Yeah, <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah, you yeah. know. So it's yeah. not just that he's seeing other people. Take there's the kind of a, there's kind of a hill of rubble that he can climb down eventually, so he makes his way down. Yeah, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. But anyways, I I kind of cut us off in the story of these great sermons and because then, he he's getting hit yeah. with these animals. Yeah. I mean, with yeah. the power, he is the animal. He is getting hit by the hammers here. You know, I mean, well, yeah, if you suppose American hammers at this day, but I think yeah. this is one of the most important yeah. things about yeah. him is that eventually, you know, when uh, the Nazis do lose and the Allies do take over, they're confused by him because he's starting to wag his finger at them as well. Mm-hmm. He is, you know, from to again kind of move back out to analysis of, of, of who he is and what he's doing, he. He's fulfilling the great obligation of the spiritual powers. He's looking at the world and he is declaring truth. He is diagnosing a problem and he is trying to bring, and he doesn't have a yeah. bias towards one way or the other. He yeah. sees an injustice and he's calling it out yep. for people to, to come to repentance. I mean, this is in the uh, Pius XI, also in the same encyclical. He says that the primary gift that priests are to give to their people is the proclamation of truth and the identification of error. And and when we're talking about a great political saint here, you might, you know, people might wonder, well, what, what was he doing? What was he organizing? How was he strategizing? He was playing the proper role of the spiritual power by trying right. to transform the temporal power to redeem it and to turn it into something identifiably Christian. And and so, or at he, least identifiably just. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 To start start somewhere, right? Um, but this is uh, you know an outstanding thing is that his, uh, you know, he 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 was even after these air raids, people want revenge. I mean, these are citizens, helpless people that are that are being killed, that are not the 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 that are. N- I mean, just like moms, yeah. babies are yep. being killed. And he says, look, you have to understand that if this is going to be a just war, by any measure, it has to be fought by just means. 
You know, you cannot have a war be just just because you're just because there is some sort of political public enemy on the other side. This is again where he he's coming up to a criticism of something that that Schmidt would and did articulate that you can have these public enemies that that they are not the people that the enemies that, that Christ calls us to love. I mean, the Christian yeah. tradition is so opposed to or just so crazy. I mean, it's just amazing that. That the, I mean, we, we couldn't have come up with this on our own. <laughs> the church has to Saint Augustine us. helped. Saint Thomas yeah. helped. A lot of other people have helped in coming yeah. up with this. And and uh, yes, it's one thing for a war to be a just war. It's another thing for it to be fought justly. Yes, right. And deliberately targeting civilians is one of the things that you're not supposed to do. You know? yeah. If you got it, if you if you target a military factory and know that some civilians nearby might be killed, that can be. What's the term? Acceptable collateral damage or whatever, but a secondary but, effect. Yeah. But secondary effect, if you use the yes, the old, yeah. old uh, double effect theory. But yeah. but to decide, and this was this was an interesting point in this in this nineteen forty three bombing by the Americans because the navigator, the chief navigator, um, writes about this bomb. And when you when when they got the the orders and said the, the the target for the purpose of lining up your planes and your bombs is the front steps of Munster Cathedral, <laughs> he said he went to his commanding officer and said, "Hey, I don't think I can do this." And um, and the commanding officer said, "This is war. Those guys have been killing civilians all over the place. They deserve what they're getting. You're my navigator. You're going." He just said, "You know." All right, sir. Yes, yeah, sir. You yes, know? sir. And so he, at that point, he compromises. He doesn't, yeah. you know, yeah. choose death yeah. over sin, yeah. heroism. Yeah. 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 You know, he doesn't. He doesn't hand over his head, and you know, yeah. to retain his conscience. Uh, yeah. Well, no, and and probably nobody on our side was <laughs> without some kind of fault in that. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Because because that's the awful thing about war in the first place. Right. That it it makes us inhumane. Right. So yeah. the, the, these are, I mean, such important topics that we're kind of hitting along the line. So the last one, before we let everybody go, is uh, is that he was the one that really brought to the attention of so many the, the eugenics program of the Nazis. And that was his third great sermon. Third great sermon of 1941. Um, he knew already happening that that patients in institutes for the mentally ill were being killed um, it had happened in other parts of Germany it was beginning to happen in parts of Munster and what would happen was that a patient or a group of patients would be transported to a different part of the country shortly afterwards their family would receive a message that they had died and been cremated and that they could go and pick up the ashes for the payment of the fee. Um, and the, as he put it in his sermon, the suspicion was widespread that these people were not dying of natural causes because the philosophy had been spread, the ideology had, had been spread for years and goes to pre-Nazi times that uh, life unworthy of life 
it's better to be dealt with by a mercy killing. Mm. And Hitler had spread that same idea, and now it was happening. It was happening uh, in a place, in, in Munster itself, with institutions in Munster. Um, and he pointed out the evil of this with such great force. Um, and uh, with the brilliance, too, of, of, of a practical specific case that that really struck home and 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 with some imagery so so the imagery um is these people who are people like us they have some disability they've got some 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 uh injury or they've gone gotten very weak with age or whatever but they're still human beings who deserve to be cared for but now they're being, being treated like a piece of machinery that doesn't work anymore mm. or like an old cow that doesn't give milk anymore mm. or a horse that's become lame. And you can kill the cow or the horse or you can scrap the machinery, but we're treating human beings this way. Um, and he gave, told a story, true story, from one of the institutes in Munsters, um, a middle-aged man with mental illness, but not sort of totally um, so totally insane that he didn't couldn't have friendly relations with his family. Yep. Um, had a visit from his son who was home from the front. Uh, the parting was difficult because they loved one another. And because who knows whether the son's going to see his father again because he could get killed at the front. So no, the son is not going to see his father again because German citizens back home have killed his father. The enemy within. The enemy within. Yeah. And, um, and the, the uproar caused by that sermon was enough that for a time, at least, the what's called the T4 program was put on hold. It's amazing. You mentioned in your book that there was only two occasions uh, that where there was a real Nazi policy that was reversed by public outcry. One of them was this. Mm-hmm. The for- other was a reversal of the decision to take out crucifixes of schools and both of them were the results of Bishop von Gollen's cries from the pulpit. Yeah. He wasn't alone because it was, it was, it was his people, his priests and absolutely. he, and he always made, he always yeah. stressed that too. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, uh, and the pe- and the people are very important. factors. Yeah. I, there's a, um, a member of Canada's <coughs> parliament, Garnet Genis, from, from one of the western provinces in Canada, um, who has Van Gallen's picture on his office wall. Oh, wow. And his grandmother, who was half Jewish, yeah. survived the war, living, hiding, being hidden by farmers in, in, in the Munster Diocese. Uh, as she was about, she was a teenager. So this is passed on in his family. 
that his grandmother attributed her survival to Bishop von Gallen. Wow. To the atmosphere that he um, supported and cultivated in, in his diocese. Wow. That is incredible. So, so his, his, I mean, this is kind of the amazing thing. When we look at the dynamics that the church has taught us, just to return to these principles, trying to tie a few things here together. When Bishop von Gallen, when Pope Benedict XVI, you know, returns to, uh, to the Rugestan and says, you know, you can make a government based upon the collective decisions of people. But amidst our sin, things are not simply self-evident today. There needs to be this external directive, the church, the magisterial church, telling us, telling all nations, all peoples, how to convert and to hold ourselves to cultivate justice. And that is what Bishop von Gallen did during his time. He was this emblematic symbol of what the right bishop, what the what the church should do to be able to enable all of us to live right. And and there was a real result. He proclaimed the truth. Things really did change. Now, of course, not to the dramatic effect. Not things... to the not to, he didn't he didn't stop the Holocaust, he didn't stop no. the war, he didn't stop the evils. But yeah, because But thank God we're not judged on how yeah. effective we are. If we were, we Mother, might be killed just like Mother the Teresa, right? God didn't ask us to be successful. He asks us to be faithful. Right, exactly. You know, Otherwise, it would be in, in a parallel to the eugenics program. How effective is this person? Yeah. You know, how productive is this disciple? Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. you know, this is a completely different question. But you do see, at least here in the shadows, you know, the way, the operations of how things in the church ought to work. Um, between between the real absolute authority, which is God's church, that we are supposed to be converting towards and entering into, that our power might be used in, cor- in, in the correspondence of the directives that she gives us, that we might be pu- become part of the church, that we might be able to spread it. So I, so he he's ultimately recognized um, for his his heroism, you know, choosing. You know, you know, would have chosen death, death over the sin. sin. Uh, in the midst of having one choice, he did choose heroism, and and Pius the Twelfth ultimately did elect him as a cardinal at the very end of his life. Yes, uh, I had no idea it was that it was the end of his life. But yeah. um, Pius the Twelfth became pope in 1939 at the beginning of the war. Uh, didn't have any consistory to create cardinals yeah. <laughs> uh, during that time. And at the end of 1945, the announcement came out that he was going to have a huge consistory. I think John Paul might have had one or two that were similar size, but 32 new cardinals when the, when the College of Cardinals was limited to 70 members. That's pretty significant. Big. Yeah. <laughs> and it included Spellman in New York, and it included Heenan was in Westminster. Uh, and he, Pius, showed his respect for the Germans and his respect for specific Germans by choosing three Germans as cardinals, and one of them was Clement August von Gallen. And um, we never, 
we never mentioned the fact that part of what made him impressive was not only that sort of this noble bearing that he had, but that he was big. Yes. Yeah. Six, so we're going to have Josiah put up a picture of this guy. Six and a half feet tall. Yeah. Put up a picture up <laughs> next to somebody smaller. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. And, um, and he was recognized at the various events of the consistory when it was his turn to come before the Holy Father to get first the red beretta and on another day the red hat. Um, and the crowd started applauding. And the Italians were whispering to each other, Count Gallen, Il Conte Gallen, Il Conte Gallen, Vescovo de Munster. And, <laughs> and there was what was described as a triumphal applause for him when he came back down from receiving the red hat. Um, the uh, Americans who were there said, who were there with Cardinal Spellman, said, you know, Van Gallen was the, was the star of the conclave, wow. of, the, of the consistory. Of the consistory and, yeah. and, and, and nobody's jealous about that. <laughs> um, and in fact, he had had, he, it, it would be too long to describe, I think, but he had a, a really crazy difficulty getting to Rome. Long, long journey to get to Rome interrupted by rainstorms and planes that were too small and <laughs> trains that didn't run and various things like that. And Spell, Cardinal Spellman arranged an American military plane for him and the other two German cardinals to fly back to Paris and from there to get cars back home. Wow, yeah. Was it the cheapest journey to Rome that any cardinal had ever taken? <laughs> it's because because, like yeah. because they, they, get, they, they have almost no money they have German money, which is not going to be at all useful. Right. German post-war money, whatever it was, which couldn't translate into, into lira in Italy. And they're going to have to go down there and buy their red vestments and various other things. But um, as they're making their polite visits to one another, Cardinal Spellman or other cardinals from elsewhere would come and visit the German cardinals and chat with them. And, and as they leave, they leave an envelope, a big thick wad of money on the, on the table. Uh-huh. These guys are able to cover all their expenses. So yeah, Von Gallen said to his secretary at the end, "I don't, I think, don't think anybody has ever become a cardinal as cheaply as we three Germans have done." <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah. and so he comes back to his people and he kind of gives his comes back to Munster life. actually on his sixty eighth birthday. Um, and the sit the 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 inner city of Munster was like ninety percent bombed out. Cathedrals are a ruin. Um, most of the of the wreckage is still just piled up in various places, uh, so that provides people a place to sit or stand, um, and uh, is received by the city, which gives him the title of an honorary citizen of Munster, and they make an address to him, and then he's received by. Uh, officially on behalf of the church and uh, the, the, the cathedral clergy of Munster. Uh, and he makes an address um, in front of about 50,000 people out in the streets on a cold March day. Um, and um, speaks of the, car, the, the, the honor that the Holy Father showed, not him, them. Hmm. He says, he says it was your. He says, there were there were many people who had to suffer much more than I did, 
They couldn't speak. They could only suffer. But I could speak. I had the responsibility to speak. I have a responsibility, as it says in the bishop's ordination, right to call black, black, and white, white. So I spoke. And God blessed it. But it was your unity with me that gave me strength. And that um, also probably saved me from what could have been my fate, but would also have been perhaps my greatest blessing. And his, and his, his voice broke um, the crown of martyrdom. Because it was your solidarity that kept that saved me from that because they knew that if they struck the Bishop of Munster, all the people of Munster would have and all the people of Westphalia would have been felt as if they were struck. And of course, you know, the Nazis had said earlier on, we will have to we don't want to make him a a martyr. He's trying to make himself a martyr. We won't allow that. You know, right. we'll take we'll take care of him after the war. Revenge tastes better cold. Right. That's that's the line that, that was Goebbels that used that. Oh, yeah. Geez. That revenge tastes is come. Say that one more time. I can't say it. Revenge, revenge tastes, tastes better cold. cold. There's yeah. different ways yeah. it's expressed, but something like that. And it is interesting. I mean, the number of times you bring up in your book the considerations: Do we take him out now? Do we arrest him now? We can't do that. You know, as, as you, yeah. it's the back cover, you know, says that Bishop von Gollen, this is Hitler himself saying this, Bishop von Gollen knows full well that after the war I shall extract retribution to the last farthing. And yet he couldn't do anything about it. I mean, because he would have lost. I mean, I think this is another part of the political situation that is, is very important to realize as, as they're building their God, that those in leadership cannot do whatever they want. They're not in full control. They are ultimately at the at the mercy of the people. How far yeah. can they convince them to go? How far can they pervert their desires? How much can they apply pressure through propaganda or fear or both to be able to get their expressed desires? But ultimately, their power is not in and of themselves. Their power only comes through their ability to affect the wills of other people. And taking out someone that everybody yeah. universally admired, like the bishop, was one of the great. It was their Achilles heel, and yeah, one of their Achilles well, heels. I spell well in multiple heels. It's so. strange. I, I think they had a better sense than their enemies did about the power of public opinion. Right. Yeah. Strangely. Yeah. And and um, the bishops, the other bishops, and perhaps even. Von Gallen, up to a certain stage, didn't realize his own power mm. in molding public opinion. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, and that, and that may still be a problem that we have today, and it may be a problem that we will have in different ways throughout history. Of, you know, as you quoted earlier, the Pope about uh, about the, the responsibility of priests to speak the truth. Right. Um, not. Being aware of that responsibility, and maybe not trusting the, the power of the truth to, to get out. Yeah, one thing I think is also becomes clear in reading of his life is that you have these two great orators, Adolf Hitler and Clems August von Gallen, and 
they are vying for ultimately the hearts of the people. They're converting them to one way or another. Yeah. There's really no in between here. And that's precisely how Van Gaalen sees it. He's, they're trying to take the hearts of our children from the faith. They're trying to take the hearts of us from our faith. Right? Yes, yeah. exactly. And and really, I think that is so many of us today see the the state, the administrative state, that the, that the structures in place are are almost just not artifacts but substances like things that just are that can't be changed and so we have to work within them and and certainly there's there's an you know this proper respect that we have for the political power uh the christian consideration for revolt as as a last consideration prudence in in our operations but really what what we have to be aware of is that there is this call for our hearts primarily and that through our desires we're going to be creating new things and you just get a really clear snapshot mm. of that in this kind of face-off between yeah. hitler and yeah. van Gaalen, i think you know because even today i mean you think about you know maybe the the fear that that some in the church may have to speak out boldly clearly and plainly uh, of the truth and say well actually the other guy is already doing that for his position. Why not you do yeah. that for Christ? Yeah. Yeah. You know, win our hearts. Don't let them win our hearts. You know, and, and that is, again, just moving back to the proper role of the spiritual power. We as a lady cannot do what we are supposed to be doing if we do not have the truth proclaimed and error identified, you know. Um, just... The fact that you pointed it out in that order, I think, is, is useful, too. Because mm. Van Gaalen pointed that out to his priests early on mm. when they are teaching falsities. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing to do in your preaching is to make a clear presentation of what the truth is. And and. The, then and only then identify the error, but attack, but refute the error. Don't I don't talk, don't attack persons. Mm. That was a strategy that right. he was giving yeah. early on. Yeah. Um, so, as we're kind of coming to the close, so I, I suppose we need to tie up the end of his life. He dies just a few days after he gives this last sermon that we were mentioning. Or messages upon, not quite a sermon, yeah. messages upon his return. Yes. Um, so that was the 16th of March, which was his birthday. Uh, he started having stomach pains. Um, he, after a couple of days, finally said, oh, I better see a doctor, and like, agreed to have the doctors look at him. And, it was, and they said, you need an emergency appendectomy like yesterday <laughs> right now. So, so um, he had surgery on the 19th, St. Joseph's Day, hmm. which was the anniversary of his baptism. Hmm. And also uh, St. Joseph is, as you all know, not only is he patron of workers, <laughs> but he's patron of a happy death. Yes. And he's, he, went into this surgery expecting, preparing for and telling his secretary, you know, we brought this book back from Rome that tells you how to do a cardinal's funeral. Yeah. You better get that out and get ready. And, uh, and he, and he uh, died on the 22nd of March. 
So just after this strong, huge, powerful, great man has made his, we can say, triumphal, triumphal return to his own city, he returns to God. Just just six days later, and then and then the crowds have to come out again a week after that for his funeral. And they do the droves. Well, so now we've completed his life. We've kind of analyzed it along the way. Um, I think we we see here the the role that he fulfilled within the social order and how he began to call for its transformation and reformation. But maybe to do a strange personal thing, what is one aspect of his life in this, in this snapshot that, that kind of sticks with you most? You've spent so many years, decades, studying, <laughs> I guess, studying yeah. his life. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I think I might throw two in. One is his courage. Yeah. Um, but uh, another is connected with what you've been saying, the, the clarity of his thought and his presentation of the truth. Um, because um, that, I think, is, is the fulfillment of what you were talking about in, in, in the responsibility of a priest, a bishop, a pope, um, is that he had a lifelong practice that he learned from his father school, but more from his father and from his mother who taught him his catechism, um, that um, you need to break things down to the first principles. Yeah. I think that fits with Pope Benedict's presentation too, because okay, we have to give you the first principles, remind you of what they are, but St. Thomas teaches also, working them down to specific applications is difficult. Yeah. And that's where professionals and politicians and philosophers and yeah. theologians and, and whatever field of thought you're working on need to, to work out those specific applications. Yeah. Um, and um, but his, his courage and his clarity of thought um, and at the right times, his wit. <laughs> um, To, to identify an evil system and, and, and the evil that was being done in its name. Um, that, that, that sticks with me. Yeah. With the maybe 10% of it. Yeah. <laughs> his, his courage and his, his clarity. Father um, Daniel, thank you so much. I'm really grateful that you came this way for this conversation, and thank you for so much for this excellent book. I mean, it really, it's been moving for me. Touch. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me and getting you an opportunity to, to visit beautiful Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just looked like his. Yeah. yeah Munsterland. Yeah. So, my yeah. my well, well, my home state, not not close to my hometown because I grew up in southwestern Ohio, yeah. but still, it's nice to be here. Great. We're, we're happy to have you. All right. Well, everybody, thanks so much for joining us. We'll uh, see you next time with another saint. Thank <laughs> you.